This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor, I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guests the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. I'm Brent Steele. Thanks so much for listening. This is my interview with Professor Alexander Barter of Florida International University. Alex is a really good friend, someone I've known since uh, we talk about it in this conversation. I've known him since 2008. When I met him at the ISA Northeast that year in Baltimore, he was a PhD student at Johns Hopkins, uh, but by way of Florida International University, so he already knew one of my best friends at the time and one of my best friends now and a friend of the pod, Harry Gold. So I met him through Harry and that network at ISA Northeast. Um, And I've been friends with Alex ever since. It was great to be able to sit down and chat with him about his journey and uh, the twists and turns that led him to where he is today. It's a very nonlinear story, which is which are always the best ones to have on this podcast. Alex grew up in, and excuse me, was born in France, but grew up uh, in Miami, Florida. His parents were French. He spoke French and went back to France uh, for most of his summers for the first uh, five to ten years of his life. He um, spoke almost solely French in um, his early years, even in Miami, uh, went to a bilingual school. And so we talk about his growing up uh, in Miami and Key Biscayne and some of the other areas where he lived around there. Uh, The formative experience of when he started to get into at least an interest in history and politics, the 1992 presidential election, uh, which was when Bill Clinton was able to beat George H.W. Bush and Ross Perot. That's a pretty important, formative presidential election, the 92 presidential election for a lot of us uh, Gen Xers, for lack of a better term. And for Alex, it was something that got him interested in politics. But he he went to American University for his freshman year and his only year in undergrad back then. Uh, He came back to Miami and uh, worked a a series of jobs, which he talks about, and did not get his undergraduate degree right out of high school. Uh, He reconsidered it and chipped away instead at uh, an undergraduate degree that eventually he finished in 2003 in mathematics at Florida International University. He also took classes at Miami-Dade College, which he talks about. And then he talks about how he became interested in international relations, getting a master's in international relations at FIU. That's a, for those of us here in the U.S. Academy, it's a fairly famous international relations degree program. Uh, They've now combined with political science, but back then international relations was its its own department with really its own identity um, with folks like Francois de Bricks and Harry Gold and Nick Onif offering courses and Alex talks about taking a an IR theory graduate seminar with co-taught by Nick Onif and Harry Gould, friend of the pod, Harry Gould again, uh, and how 
impactful that was for him and his master's program and then deciding that he did want to go on to get his Ph.D. Um, but that wasn't necessarily straightforward because the one program that he applied to at Johns Hopkins, he did not get into uh, the first time. And so he had kind of a moment of reflection where he thought he'd maybe go to law school. He reconsidered that. He talks about that process. And then he reapplied to Johns Hopkins and a number of uh, graduate programs the following year. He did get in to Hopkins and then uh, pursued his Ph.D. there. So we chat about that. We chat about his publishing uh, a book even before he finished his dissertation, uh, a co-authored book with Francois de Bricks called Beyond Biopolitics, uh, which is a fantastic book. It was published uh, about 10 years ago. And um, and then his foray into the market, interviewing at St. Andrews, and then taking a job, not taking the job at St. Andrews, but instead taking a job at American University in Beirut. And so we chat about that and the time that he was there in Beirut with a family. Um, it was also the time of the, the kind of the height of the Syrian civil war. And so seeing the refugee camps that were there in Lebanon, um, very impactful uh, situation um, to be around and to be to be working in. And um, and so we chat about that, but then eventually getting a job at FIU and coming back to the States, we're moving back to Miami and the many publications that he was um, he was producing during this period of time. So you can imagine how challenging it is to transition to all these uh, places, but then also still being as prolific of a scholar as Alex was and still is to this day. We finish up by chatting about how he approaches writing, what he does to decompress. And, um, yeah, so it was it was a, a really enjoyable conversation with Alex. He's, he's also in administration, and like many of us, once you get tenure, you get a pat on the back, and then you are strongly encouraged to take an administrative position. So he's the director of graduate studies, um, the grad director there at FIU. And that can be a very fulfilling role to take. Uh, I was in that same role for five years here at the University of Utah, but it's also a very stressful role. It can take you away from your research. And so it was great to be able to connect with him on that and just to connect with him about uh, how everything is going. He's one of the most supportive, positive individuals you're ever going to meet in academia. If you haven't met Alex yet, I hope you get to. He just published... Global Race War, International Politics and Racial Hierarchy with Oxford University Press. It is a fantastic book. I hope you get to read it. It is already impacting the way I think about my research going forward. And he's also just a great human being. So this is Professor Alexander D. Barter on the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. Cheers. Well, Professor Alexander Barter, welcome to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. Thank you for having me. So in the beginning, where did you grow up? Um, so I was actually, I was born in Paris, France. My, my family's French. Um, and uh, my mom and dad actually moved to Miami, Florida when I was about six months, a year old, I think. And so I grew up actually in Miami Beach. Um, 
and went to school there. Um, and then um, roughly, I think in, when I started middle school is when I went to a uh, bilingual English French school. And then after that, all throughout um, middle school and high school, it was more of, a, I was a sort of in, in a French program that was embedded in an American high school. So I had sort of both programs. Why did your parents move? Well, I think so. My my dad, you know, it's funny. I had I had that conversation recently with my dad, and he was saying that uh, the idea was that there were there were much more sort of opportunities in terms of what he wanted to do in the United States than in France. I mean, he was interested in in um, the airline business, um, mm -hmm. and so um, there were a lot more um, things that he can do here in the United States that that were much more closed in France, and so they ended up moving here. My mom recently actually was telling me that, uh, so she didn't speak any English when she came. Right. And so it was a really difficult adjustment for her. Um, so, uh, yeah. So what, um, had they been, had, had they been to the States before? Uh, it sounds like your dad maybe had traveled, uh, to the States, uh, before, or. I know, I know my mom hasn't, hadn't, this was like the first time. Um, but I, I probably, my dad had, had come before. Right. Okay. And it, but it does sound like, so you went to um, a bilingual school in middle school, but were you, was your family bilingual? Like, was the environment when you were growing up as a little kid, what were you speaking two languages? All the, okay. No, no, no. We were, I mean, it was a completely French, right? So I grew up with French. That was, that was my first language. And I would spend all my summers uh, essentially in France. Uh, my, 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 on my mom's side, um, they were are from the north of France, actually not far from Belgium. Um, so I would go and spend most of my summers with my grandparents there. Um, and so I was always, you know, it was always very, we were a very Francophile uh, family and Francophone, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so French was my, my essentially my, my first language. Um, we're... Uh... Where in my so it was you said Miami Beach was where like where like where within Miami like what was the neighborhood like where where you grew up and you know what what did you do for fun and and what were your friends like and everything? Yeah, I mean, I we so I lived in uh, in an apartment and off off the beach basically. We were on living on the beach, um, not far from where South Beach is. I mean, you know, you could walk maybe like ten blocks from from South Beach. Um, and uh, my school, my elementary school was. I think maybe ten minutes away from from where I used to, where I grew up. Essentially, we moved subsequently after um, to a place called Key Biscayne, which was an essentially an island off of the coast of of Miami. Um, and I went to initially at least uh, so middle school and and uh, high school. Then I went to in in Coral Gables, and then actually my last year of high school. Uh, so I did up until eleventh grade. My last year of high school, I I did a boarding school. Uh, for in, in Geneva, Switzerland. So I was there for, for my last year. And what what kinds of topics were you in, interested in when you were growing up as a kid in school and everything? And 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 were were you all talking about politics? Because uh I'm fast forwarding ahead of you a little bit, but you're uh if people look at your CV and I'm sure we'll get to this as well. Uh, your bachelor's isn't in politics, international relations. It's in mathematics. So, um, so yeah, I'm wondering, like, what kinds of subjects uh, as you were growing up when you were younger, uh, you were interested in, but did politics ever enter any of the family conversations? 
No, I don't. I don't. I don't recall many conversations within the family about politics with with my immediate family. Where I recall, I mean, where I think I got my interest in politics was with my grandfather.、Uh, and as I mentioned, I was spending a lot of summers with my grandparents there, and I would have these conversations with my grandfather. Particular, I was particularly interested in in his experience. So he was, you know, he he lived under occupation in the Second World War in northern France, obviously.、Uh, he then, when I think when he turned eighteen, he joined the French army and sort of fought against the Germans, right? And so、um, I was, I, I remember at a very early age, I was really interested in that and that and that sort of personal history and that's and and the history of. You know of of the war between in the Second World War and then the war between France and Germany in particular. So I, would, I always have sort of asking all these questions about that,、um, which is what led to me to read a lot more about about history more generally. So I was really interested in history as growing up, and I would、um, I should say that、um, I was not a particularly studious person in in elementary school、um, because I didn't like busy work、um, and I didn't like sort of the formal structure that you know. Uh, primary school is usually,、um, but what I would do also, I would do basically the minimum necessary to pass my classes and not have any sort of trouble from my teachers.、Um, and the rest of the time, I would actually get on the bus after school and I would I would go to the public library. And, and at the public library, I would spend a lot of time like just going through the the shelves. Books and and particularly the history books and and seeing what I was particularly interested and especially with, with regards to like you know World War One World War Two like reading you know all these different histories are so I remember at a very early age I would spend a lot of time reading、um, I would say that the two subjects I think that I that I was particularly interested in was was history obviously and then、uh, mathematics because I was good at math but I never imagined that I would have any sort of career in history right it was sort of personal. Interests, but I figured you know math might be something that would be useful eventually. Was it World War Two era history or any kind of history that you were interested? Well, in? so yeah, yeah so、uh, a lot of World War Two history, but I, I became really interested in all sorts of of history.、Um, I remember that、uh, I mentioned it. My parents actually had these two books,、um, history books. But they were sort of、um, one was the history of、uh, one was the history of Great Britain, and the other was the history of France. And it was sort of these books that I mean, there were a lot of texts. And I, as a, as a young kid, I, I didn't understand any of, of what was being written. But they had these beautiful sort of、um, paintings, reproduction of these paintings of like battles and kings and queens. And I was always fascinated about trying to imagine what that time period was like. Right? What the how did people think at that moment at that time? And You know,、um, what was that battle like, right? So it sort of spurred in me this kind of interest in、um, understanding、uh, a particular period of time and and the politics of that. Eventually, is, is what came out of it. So, were you?、Um, did you pay attention as you got into like high school? It sounds like you were in Coral Gables by this point,、uh, mm. um, and I'm thinking of when. So this would have been probably the mid to late '90s、uh, when you were. No, no, this was a th- this was early '90s. It was early '90s. Okay, so that、yeah. that prompts another question. If I'm looking at the timeline on on、uh, your degree and everything, okay, this is going to be good. So there's a so, big gap. <laughs> okay, so good. So we're going to get into that. All right.、Um, so we're. we're 
were you like at least paying attention or privy to, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the 1990s, you know, conflicts and like the Balkans, that kind of stuff? Were you paying attention to that? Was were you noticing? Absolutely. That? OK. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and, were, uh, and were you talking to like like, you know, like your friends about that kind of stuff or your teachers or anything or? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so so the formative events of political events. Um, I, I, when I think back about it, I think even beginning in the, in the mid eighties, right. So as I said, I grew up in the United States and I remember, for example, the sort of fear of the Soviet union, right. That there was this intensity with regards to the confrontation with the Soviet union. Then there was the fall of the Berlin wall, desert storm, right. 1990, 1990, 91. And, and so I was glued to watching CNN, uh, and at that at that time, and then obviously, right? So uh, Yugoslavia, the breakdown of, of Yugoslavia, right? So all these issues, and then also, I think that what was also formative for me was um, the presidential election of 1992, right? Bill Clinton, um, and so I, you know, I was I, I got got really interested in all these different events, but again, it was sort of it was not in the in the sense that it would lead to something. Um, scholarly or that I would work in politics or anything. It was sort of, it was always in the background of, of an interest, but it never, it never occurred to me that I could do anything with it. What was your high school like? Um, was it big? Was it little? Did, was it diverse? Was it, yeah, like. So it was a big, it was a big diverse school. Um, the thing though, was that, as I said, I was, I was in this, uh, what's it called? The International Studies Program. And we were a group of sort of French kids, right? That were, you know, all together. Um, there was a German program and there was a Spanish program. And I think, so we it created a kind of community of, of French kids and families that were going through this program. Um, and, and so it was, it was much more intimate than being sort of projected into like this big high school. Why was it so? I guess I I don't. I mean, this completely shows my ignorance. Even though I've been to Miami a few times, um, why was there a big? Or it seems to me like there was at least a um, uh, a substantial enough group of um, you know Fr French uh, uh, families or whatever in that area. Were and it sounds like you were with kids your same age, so they had parents that were maybe roughly your parents' age. Um, what was what was attracting folks uh, from to move from France to uh, that part of Miami or the Miami area? Or was it just all like idiosyncratic reasons that all put you, you know? There? I mean, yeah, I think there, there, there are multiple reasons. I mean, there are a lot of expats, right? So there are a lot of multinationals that um, relocated to Miami because Miami becomes the opening for Latin America and South America, right? There are a lot of people that come from France, you know, who um, who want to start businesses, right? So it's it's much easier to start a business in the United States than it is in France, right? It's in a big, much bigger market, right? Um, and so there are all sorts of, I think, reasons for why, uh, you know, particularly French families that come to Miami, the weather is great, right? You know, when you live in Paris in in the winter time, you know, it's not it's not as pleasant than than Miami, um, and so. Uh, this, the population of French, uh, the French community in Miami has steadily grown, right? Um, I think it's a pretty substantial community, right? So to the point that they, for example, they opened um, an actual uh, French school that, that my kids went to, right? When we moved back to Miami in 2014. 
and that my daughter's currently part of. So was college always the first option or were you thinking about college or um, obviously there's a gap there, right? Which I think we're going to get into, but um, were, you know, was, was the expectation when you're in this school and or your family that you would go to college and then how did that end up panning out or not? So as I said, I I went to, for the last year of my high school, I went to a boarding school in Geneva uh, for a year. And then, um, yeah, I mean, the, the expectation was that I would go to college. What what was less clear was what I would do, right? I was, as I said, I was interested. I was interested in mathematics. I had done after I finished my high school. I, I was able to get a job or an internship uh, at a bank in Geneva for like a summer. So I figured something maybe in banking or finance. Um, I, I forget exactly how many schools I applied to in, in my, in my 12th grade, I think, but I, I, so I ended up going to American university in DC and I ended up spending, I think in total three semesters. Um, and I think what happened was that I ended up, I ended up not really interested in studying anymore. I was kind of, you know, as I said, I was not particularly interested in school, even all throughout high school. I was doing sort of my own thing. I was reading a lot, but I was not interested in sort of, you know, cl- going to class again and doing that, that that homework and things like that. And I just decided that, you know, I this didn't this didn't really pan out for me. I didn't wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I I decided to take to to leave American University. I came back to Miami, um, and I spent. I think I, so this was 95, I think, right? Um, so between 95 and I would say 2003, I was taking classes at, at FIU, I was taking classes at Miami Day College, but I was mainly spending my time working and, you know, trying to figure things out, like what is it that I want to do? And I, and it sort of took me a while to, to understand that. Um, so I did have a question, like what, what were your impressions of living in Geneva during that period of time for you? So when you would have been 17, 18, it sounds like it was okay if you ended up getting a job and staying there a little bit longer. Right. Um, No, I I love Geneva. Actually, Geneva is one of my favorite places. Um, and so I had, I had a wonderful time the last, so the, the, the time that I spent in boarding school actually was a really happy time for me because I met a lot of um, uh, friends from all around the world, right? Um, and we were living in this boarding house, basically left our own devices, right? So imagine a bunch of seventeen-year-olds, you know. Um, and so, uh, so no, I had a, I had a blast, really. Um, didn't spend a lot of time studying, which was the problem, right? So. <laughs> Did did um, you think about going to any um, unis in in Europe or the UK or anything like while like while you were there or was the plan always that you go to boarding school over there and then come back to the states for your undergrad? You know that's a good question. I think the plan ultimately um, was that I would come back to the United States and that I would um, you know finish my degree and then I would go and and do something in like finance or banking and I think that was sort of what I wanted to do, but I wasn't. I don't know. I was sort of. I, I ended up being lost a little bit, right? Getting lost in in, in that period of time. Um, so, you know, I was taking all these economic classes and finance classes, and I was just. I didn't want to, and I was thinking to myself, I don't want to sit through this. What, what am I doing? And so, 
I decided, yeah, like I said, I decided to just, you know, quit school for a bit. Um, I think, you know, I think if I had taken a year off after high school. That gap worked, year, right? Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think it would have matured me in a way that that maybe would have would have um, uh, sort of allowed me to think about more clear, clearly about what I, what I wanted to do. And that's a big, yeah. there's a big difference in, um, well, maybe back then there was no difference, but I, like now I really feel like the gap year experience um, is something that, uh, you know, is is much more recognized as legitimate and maybe even necessary, especially in the UK and Europe. Here in the United mm -hmm. States, it still hasn't quite caught on, although I think we understand the logic of it. Um, but what would, what was the option of doing a gap year? Even did that even enter your your mind back then? No, no, not at all. Um, it was um, it was not something that I discussed at all with my parents. I don't think right. that, you know, my parents mm -hmm. would have would have you know been tolerating that, um, or they would have said, you know, yeah, you want to do that, then go find a job and 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 sustain yourself, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it wasn't really seen as an option. Um, but I think that it I would have benefited from, I, I mean, I, when I look back, you know, after, you know, 20 years or so, mm -hmm. I think, um, it would have matured me in a way that, that, um, would have helped me. Um, yeah, so I, a, our son, our son is, is going to college in two years. Right. And so uh -huh. that's, that's been a topic of conversation about whether he should go straight out of high school or whether he should take a year off. And so. I, I have the same, I'm, we're having this, you know, Annabelle's going to be. I mean, she's entering her senior year. She's at. She's actually right now as we're recording this at college boot camp, uh, the prep uh, boot camp, as they call it. Which, even that, right, is a little bit of vernacular. Uh, that's you know, we could we could we could analyze that discourse over calling it a, a college prep boot boot camp. But um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I I think having a gap year would be good. The problem in the at least my experience with the Midwest, and this was a case where. Um, at least in the Midwest where I grew up, if if you didn't go to college right out of high school and said you were just going to take a year, those were the folks that just ended up working in like the factories or on the farms or in manufacturing or whatever, and then never right. went back to college. Or if they did, they did it like 20, 30 years later um, right. because it wasn't really a gap year, right? It was like then they started making decent money and and um, or started having families and then they were going to, you know, be tied to that. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think there is a benefit to it. What's um, you mentioned you, you, you did get back into going to Miami date and then uh, was it Miami date and then FIU or was it a little bit of both? And then what was, yeah, was the job that you, what were the jobs that you had that you worked on the side or, or in addition to that? Cause it sounds like it was a pretty busy time. Yeah, I was, I was taking one, one or two classes per semester. So I wasn't sort of, I was taking them at my date and I took one at FIU and then, and so I was accumulating all these different credits. I was taking mainly classes in math and physics. Um, and um, I saw so the kinds of jobs that I did. I, I, I worked for a, a credit card processor doing like all sorts of data entry stuff. I worked in a physics lab for about a year uh, at, at FIU. I worked, I did all sorts of other jobs, right? Um, what else did I do? I worked for um, a, a brokerage firm. I was doing order. Um, I was communicating orders to the exchanges uh, in, in in Chicago. Um, so yeah, so roughly between I would say 1995, 96 to to 2003 when I when I 
started grad school, I was just doing all sorts of things, different jobs. Um, the craziest thing that I did basically um, was that, um, you know, I was, I mean, the years were, you know how fast time flies, right? It begins, you know, and then you're wondering like, what am I going to do? When am I going to get serious? What have you? Um, so I had a friend who um, was really into the military and he, we were chatting and he's like, you know, maybe what you should do is join the military. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll pay for college. You can do interesting work and what have you. So guess what I ended up doing? I joined the U S air force. Um, and I went, um, in March of 2002. To so we're talking like five, six months or seven months removed from, from September 11th then. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. I never knew that. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I don't use, I usually leave that out of my CV because what happened was, so I, I, so I joined, um, I go to boot camp, and then I ended up getting an, I, so I did the whole boot camp, but I ended up getting an entry level separation because of, I had a, I had, or I have or a bad back. And so I was constantly in pain when I was doing PT. So the doctor checked me out and it's like, look, I don't think you can, you can stick around. Which, to be honest, after three months of basic training at um, at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> but I mean, I have to say that uh, at the time it was it was really you know for somebody like me who doesn't like sort of a lot of the disciplinary apparatus of of different institutions, um, it was my parents were like, what you, what the hell are you doing? You know, um, it was very uncharacteristic. But I was going to say what, what what was interesting was that and when I look back upon it now, it was sort of the electric shock that I needed to um, you know get serious with finishing my bachelor's and then get serious about continuing my education. Um, so a lot. Plus, it, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, and plus I learned how to you know fold my underwear and socks in in a very kind of neat way, and I and I make the bed in in a perfect way. So. <laughs> And that still never, it, that never leaves. That's a little bit like riding a bike, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this period of time then is really, um, it, it is, like you said, it's electroshock. It's a real pivot point for you too, because yeah. a lot must've been happening then after you got done with that. So that would have been in the summer and fall of 2002, yeah. which is then your final year of undergrad. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and so you already know then that you're a math major, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, so you know what you got to do. But then this would be the period of time when you're also within a year from then, um, probably going to start uh, your master's program at FIU. So were you applying for graduate programs? And, and then how were you thinking... How did you make the switch in your mind of, okay, well, this is what I'm going to get my bachelor's in, but I'm going to do something in international studies. Or was it one of those things that you already knew some of the professors at FIU? Uh, no. Okay. So yeah. How did that all? No, no, no. no. So that's a, that's a, a pure happenstance, right? Which is that, um, so I come back from basic, right? And I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to finish my, my math degree. I had accumulated so many credits that I was I just needed one semester of just some basic courses and, 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 you know, I would get my, my BA in math. And then the question was, what, are we, what am I going to do with that? Um, and then in, in the beginning of, of 2003 uh, at FIU there, at the time there were these, what they used to call, we used to call the blue tables, which were outside and people would sit there and smoke. Right. So I would, I would at the time I would smoke a lot. And then I ended up by pure happenstance 
uh, meeting through a mutual friend, some grad school students, uh, grad students that were in the IR program at FIU, one of whom would subsequently become my wife, you know, a few years after. Um, and so this was right around the time of, of the lead up to the Iraq war. Um, and I think the Iraq war also uh, triggered in me a kind of, uh, you know, first of all, I was, I was, I thought it was a terrible idea, but also interest in, in terms of thinking about why is this happening and, and how to understand this and what have you. And so one of the, uh, you know, one of uh, who became a good friend eventually, uh, students there was like, you know, you, you, you obviously see, seem like you know a lot of history. You should come and, 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 you know, do an MA in the IR program. You know, IR might be a field that might be of interest to you. Um, so I, I you know, I, I said, okay. And then I, I ended up taking one class uh, with a professor who is now one of my colleagues here at FIU. Um, and I got really interested. And so I applied to the program, got admitted, and then um, this was, I think, spring of 2004, where I took um, the Theory 2 seminar, theory, IR Theory 2 seminar with Nick Onuf and Harry Gould. All right, so that was my main, that was when I really began to study international relations and international relations theory. Um, so, yeah, uh, Harry Gould and, and, and Nick Onuf were, were my sort of formative experience for for thinking about well, international relations. And, and FIU, I, I think, uh, maybe it's still this way, but the 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 IR, the the big grad IR theory seminar that you typically have in most programs, like like at, at KU, it was polls 870, here it's 6850, but it's like one semester. But FIU always, at least historically, has done two, theory, theory one and theory two, right? So you had yeah. already taken probably in the fall theory one and then you're taking no you hadn't okay no no i hadn't i hadn't taken theory one yet right so i had taken a, uh the course that i had taken um was strategic studies which dealt with all the question of grand strategy and 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 what have you um and and so i i i was told you know you could take theory theory two but i was also concerned because i hadn't taken theory one right and and my knowledge of theory at the time was was rather <laughs> was rather limited um so i i you know, Nick and, and and Harry, you know, they're they're very generous. And so they're like, yeah, you can sit in this, you can you can take the class, it's not a problem. But I have to say I was completely lost, right? Because I had no idea what was going on. I, you know, they they started off the semester with reading Alex Wentz book. Um and and so it, it just didn't register to me, you know, a lot of the sort of the theoretical questions that were being um discussed, right? Um and so, but nonetheless, I think what what came out of that seminar. So we read. I mean, we read a lot of really interesting work. We read Spike Peterson. We read um, uh, Nick LeBeau's book at the time, which was on on classical realism. Um, so we read a lot of really interesting stuff that, at the time, again, as I said, sort of flew over my head. What was I think so significant for me in that seminar um, was that they were doing a lot of socialization, right, in 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 the academy. What does it mean to be an academic, right? What are the things that you need to do, right? Um, what are the, the uh, what does it mean to go to conferences, right? Um, and, and so that was, I think, extraordinarily formative for me, right? Because it, it, it gave me a window into how the academy works that I think a lot of um, students don't get, which is what I do also now to, to my students, right? So I give them, try to give them uh, a window into what is what is the academy 
Well, and I'm so a friend of the pod, uh, Harry Gold, who has been on a past episode. I'm thinking about his timeline as well. So he is still technically a, a graduate student at Hopkins, right. but he was teaching for FIU at this period of time, I believe. Yeah. And so he's co-teaching this class with Nick in right. the spring of 2004. Um, so that, yeah, that, that brings up a, a, a bunch of interesting questions. But the one I was thinking is, is those two are so, well, obviously Nick Onif is Nick Onif, but Harry is also uh, by that point, um, really well networked and FIU is, is on the map as being like a, you know, this is a, this is a, you know, a key node of constructivist IR because you'd already had a couple of the, the constructivist, uh, volumes that had come out with it, that Emmy Sharp series by then mm-hmm. in 1998, 2003, I think Francois edited volume was coming, it had come out in 2003 on language and world right. politics. And so there, there were a couple of those already out. So what I'm wondering is, did you then um had you presented at any conferences by this point or was this something that because of that socialization in the spring of 04 you started to think about okay i could go to conferences i can meet um maybe some scholars that are you know either there or and fiu also had a speaker series right i think if i remember correctly so they were maybe bringing in some people during this period of time as well yeah i i mean i so i started thinking about conferences um I think the first conference that I went to was the ISA South conference um, in 2004, in, in um, fall of 2004, right? Um, and and it was in I Miami. Think, no, no, it was in. I think it was in Charlotte. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that um, yeah. So I started thinking about all these issues. I, I was thinking, and then that, so I got interested in doing the PhD, right? And the question for me at the time was. Obviously, where do I do the PhDs? Do I do I do it at FIU or do I have to go somewhere else? And 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 that's where that's where Nick was, uh, and also Francois, right? Because Francois really, I think, perhaps more than Nick, became my mentor at the time and sort of guided me in, in a way that was so instrumental in 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 in, further, in, in future years. Um, Nick and Francois were telling me, and and Harry, obviously, you know, um, if you're really interested in pursuing this, then then you should you should leave FIU, right? Um, and and Hopkins would be a great place for you. Um, and so that's when I started thinking about, well, what do I need to do as far as if I wanted to pursue this career? And so, yeah, so conf- going to conferences, but also in terms of assuring myself that I would get into a program like Hopkins. And so how did you prepare <laughs> for well, that? So I, I, so I yeah. wrote a, I decided to, for the MA, I decided to write a thesis, right? So I wrote a, a master's thesis. Um, I worked with Francois on it. Harry was on, on the committee. Um, and what was the topic? So I wrote on on Carl Schmitt's uh, idea of of the nomos of the earth and international law. No, no shit, really. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, and this yeah, yeah, so, this is kind of preceding. I think um, I'm calling you a trailblazer now, Alex. I mean, I remember the <laughs> I remember the big Schmittian, you know, sort of presence yeah. that happens at the end of the decade, right? Um, uh, or, you know, just a little bit after that period of time. But how did how did you get into Schmidt and especially the nomos, right? Because that's usually not yeah. the there's a concept of the political that that usually is everyone's gateway drug into Schmidt. But um, yeah, but yeah. So how did you was it a theory class that you had taken where you started reading? Yeah. Schmitt or? Well, so it was a theory class that I had taken and we read, I think, the concept of the political. And so I think I got it. That's where I got interested in Schmidt. Um, and um 
I think I, yeah, I, I was more interested in his, in, in thinking about his international law or the implications for international law at the time. Um, and I think Talos had just uh, translated the Nomos of the Earth, I think in 2003, 2004. So, so it had just come out, right? It was previously, it was, in, it was only in German. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I worked on, on Schmidt and, and, and um, I think Francois was also interested in him. And so that sort of meshed well with, with, uh, you know, our research interest. Um, and then, um, yeah, so, you know, I, the thesis, I think, took me about six months to, to write. And I think I forget exactly when I defended it sometime in this early spring of, of 2005. Right. And, uh, oh, no, sorry, six. I'm getting my years confused. We're going to have to. Yeah. So, you know, you got your degree. I have your CV <laughs> right in front of me. No, you got your degree in 2005. So it would have been in okay. spring of 2005 right. but you're also you're also like the process of writing a thesis far precedes the defense right and so that's also right. something that is probably happening in conjunction with or running in parallel to yeah. thinking about which grad program to go to which is also part of the spring of your you know uh when you're defending your master's thesis so yeah. you're probably doing all of that uh yeah. at the same time right yeah right so I was doing that. I went to, so I was, I was really interested in going to Hopkins. Right. Um, and so uh, I think uh, Harry in particular encouraged me to fly up there and, and and meet some of the faculty, which I did in December of 2005. Um, so I went up there and I met, I met Sibugro and I met uh, for the the one time and only time I met Richard Flatman and, and Bill Connolly Um I also met, I think, Jennifer Colbert and Jane Bennett. Right, so I met some. I met a lot of the faculty that there. Um, so I applied. I was really, the only PhD program that I applied after my MA, and I and I got waitlisted. And so in the end, I, so I I didn't get in the uh, the first year, right? Um, and so now I'm thinking, what am I going to do, right? Um, because in the meantime, I got married. Um, Al and I had our son Robert, who was born in March of 2006. Um, so now the question is, what am I going to do? And you know, it's kind of stressful, right, when you have a family and and what have you. So <laughs> I decide to to try by to try to go to law school. I'm like, well, maybe I should go to law school, and and the academic career is not going to be for me, right? It's not going to work out. And I remember I was telling uh, uh, Jason Wider, right um what i'm planning on, on doing and he looks at me with this face this look on his face he's like how many lawyers do you know are happy and i and that was sort of like the light bulb just went out off you know and i'm just like wow you're right <laughs> so so thanks to jason widener i i reapplied to hopkins but this time i thought okay i will hedge my bets and apply to different dc schools we wanted to be in the dc area because um all his family was living there and it would be really helpful with you know going to grad school and having a child um so i applied to georgetown gw and i think i think catholic i was going to apply to au and I, but but i think uh, i had met with patrick jackson and he and he was telling me well you know based on what you want to do i'm not sure if this would be a good program for you you should try you should go to hopkins right <laughs> so um so i ended up yeah so then i ended up getting i get it i ended up actually getting into all these schools right but i think hopkins was the only one who funded me I see. Um, and you, so it sounds like, I mean, was there anything that you did that you think strengthened 
your application from one year to the next, or was it a little bit more con- just kind of contingent or? Um... I mean, I think it was contingent. I think also I, I really sort of worked uh, my, my um, uh, essay, right? So, or not the essay, but the, you know, the statement of purpose mm-hmm. um, to be very specific or try to be specific about why, why do I want to go to Hopkins and why I think it, it would be a good program for me. Mm-hmm. um and, and what i want to study right um and also i mean i remember you know one of the things that that i was never really good at is a, is a test taker so my gre scores were sort of okay but not great so i ended up having to redo that and and getting a better score and so i think that my file overall was was better mm-hmm. um but also i think you know i had i had met sibagro a few times and and I think he 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 noticed maybe that I was serious about pursuing this, and so that sort of helped me as well. So, what was the transition to Hopkins that, that first year like? Um, I'm trying to think. Was I I know there's a few people that are around your cohort. Maybe they were in your cohort. I'm thinking about all the folks that I now know um, yeah. that are Hopkins PhDs. Uh, from from right around that time but um was it intimidating or did you feel pretty like comfortable or i mean what you know what what was that first year especially like no i i was i was completely intimidated i I was kept thinking to myself what the hell did i get myself into um so for me who who who, i was i came into hopkins obviously with a very non-traditional background i was and and so i always felt that i didn't have the um the background that that some of my my colleagues had and friends um but at the same time you know it, it yeah i mean it, it it was such a collegial environment that i never felt that I, obviously that i was not welcomed i never felt any sort of pressure um either from my professors or or my friends and colleagues right it was such a wonderful experience and time that i was there the first semester that i get to hopkins um, John Pocock comes out of retirement and decides to teach a class. So I take his class on history and historiography of the 18th century, um, which was absolutely just incredible. Um, I took a class with uh, a famous Italian political philo- or Italian philosopher, Deleuzian scholar by the name of Paolo Marotti, called History and the Events. And I was completely out of my depth. I mean, we had to read Husserl, we read Heidegger, we read um, Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, a lot of Deleuze. And I had no idea what was going on. But it, it was really interesting. And then, you know, when I think about it, um, after all these years, um, and I finally I had this conversation with her a few years ago when I was at the ISA Northeast. I came to Hopkins and I, by chance, I, I saw her. And I would tell her, you know, your seminar was so interesting five or six years after I took it because I can actually start understanding what you were talking about. And she looks at me and she's like, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. <laughs> so, so it takes a while, I think, for, for us as students to, to internalize and understand a lot of what we do. Sometimes I wish I could go back and, and retake some of those seminars with what I know now. I think it would be maybe more useful. <laughs> Well, yeah, because you're you're able to layer it with some of the other yeah. stuff that you pick up. Um, that takes a while, also to to seep in, and then you put it into conversation with that. Um, well, I know that you're attending 
conferences fairly early on while you were at at Hopkins because I think it was in the fall mm-hmm. of 08 when I first met you that was my first ISA Northeast and it was mm-hmm. in Baltimore although I, I think you you always lived in DC right or or yeah yeah okay so you would just you you take the train up or drive up or whatever like how would you get up to to Baltimore yeah the campus? first the first year I think I used to take the mark train a lot. And then I subsequently, when I, you know, if I had to go once a week or something, I would just drive up for a seminar. But I, I, I do think, I think we first met, right, in fall of 08 for the ISA Northeast. Fall of 08 was, I want to say it was right when, um, you know, the the 2008 presidential election was going on. So I think yeah. the, the, the like the vice presidential debate between Biden and um, Sarah Palin had happened like one of the nights, which was weird, too, because that got like a lot of interest because Sarah Palin was such a, you know, yeah. um, uh, you know, a particularly unique candidate um, and running mate. And then um, but we I just I remember I had never been to a Northeast before. But I remember one of the things I really dug about it was there, well, a couple of things. One was that you were just interacting with a lot of people that mm-hmm. were doing work that, that always felt like it was, you were told it was on the margins, but there it was just kind of conventional wisdom that you would have these discussions about Deleuze or, you know, rethinking Hobbes or whatever. Right. And I was on a panel with Steph Fischel when she was still a grad student. Um, and, uh, Jack, uh, Amaro and Harry and, um, and you were in the audience. And so the other thing that I liked about it was there's all these Hopkins grad students as well, mm-hmm. but figuring, and I think Bill, uh, Connolly had given like the, the luncheon keynote, which probably ended up developing into one of his books, you know? Um, but it was, and Nick Tampio was on our, uh, was there at some point as well. Um, and what was neat was that there was no clear dividing line between what was political theory and what was IR. It was just all right there, right? Which is also kind of a hallmark of um, the Hopkins program, especially if you're yeah. talking about some of the classes that uh, you, you know, you took uh, while you were there and the professors that you and the readings that you're, you're engaging in. And then I think we, you and I probably started connecting pretty regularly at both ISAs and Northeast thereafter. Um, Because I I remember one other time, I don't, um, I don't know how long, because you mentioned earlier that you, you were a smoker and so you'd go outside. And so like Nick O'Shea's, um, uh, I remember walking by there, I was supposed to meet Harry and you were out front and I hadn't seen Harry yet, you know, during one of my, you know, times, like it was the, first time I was going to see him in a long time uh, inside there, but I ended up just shooting the shit with you <laughs> outside because you were smoking cigarettes and everything. So I was able to catch up with you. And so that might've been in like 09, uh, 2010, because yeah. it, it was always in Baltimore. Uh, and then they started the back and forth, like in the 2010s between Baltimore and, and Providence. And then we were on a panel at, um, because you didn't defend your dissertation until 2012. So right. there were times I think you and I were on panels together while you were a grad student. You were always a great discussant. I remember you were discussing at one of those Northeast, um, maybe mm-hmm. the fall of 09 for, for a panel I put together. And then, um, and then we were on a panel, I think it was that 2010 ISA in New Orleans, right? And so it was you and like the ones I remember were you and me 
and was um, it the one with fritz there was a, and was fritz a was our it was a discussion i was the chair and you had presented a paper and so had mccord do you remember and then i do think remember when I, when yeah. fritz almost threw the pencil at oliver kester because <laughs> he was getting annoyed <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I, I remember thinking, like, Fritz knows this guy, but does everyone here know that he knows this guy? And all he's his, you know, his, you know, shining student or whatever. But yeah. I also remember that was like an early morning panel, but it yeah. was packed. It was absolutely it was packed, yeah. packed. Aisha was there. I mean, there there were a bunch of folks that were there. Um, and so that so that was gonna lead to like one of the questions I had was um you had already you know attended like the ISA South as your first conference and everything else, but it seems like your your conferencing really amped up either either when you got to Hopkins or shortly thereafter. Was that was that a conscious strategy or was that just something that you kind of enjoyed doing? Back then. No, I mean, so both, right? I mean, I enjoyed doing it because I got to meet, uh, you know, fascinating people and hang out with friends and, and you know, drink beer with with great people. Um, but it also was was conscious. I was conscious of the need to to be productive, right? And so that's when it was all throughout my, my time at Hopkins, early years of Hopkins, when I was co-writing with Francois, the Beyond Biopolitics book. So we were presenting that at conferences um and um and i was doing my you know my own work as 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 well right so there was this sense that um you know if i'm pursuing this phd i need to get a job right and and i think one of the ways of of being successful was was to make sure that i had enough publications to be competitive on the job market right so it was it was instrumental but it also it was a process that i, I enjoyed right so I, I did have a question because it is unique to publish your first book before you defend your dissertation. Um, and uh, a couple of questions on that, because the, the the book was with Francois and then you had kind of a precursor article with um, Francois uh, that was published in 2009 uh, on governmentality and the biopolitical production of terror. That was that was in IPS, which mm -hmm. was still a newer journal, but was I mean, it was an ISA journal. It was out there. Everybody got it. That was back when as long as you were part of the IPS section, you would you would get your hard copy of IPS um, mm -hmm. back when we still got those. And so I, I remember reading that immediately um, when I got it because I wasn't. Um, I was I was getting into at least Foucault a little bit uh, then because that was right around the time I was uh, working on defacing power, um, which was I had a lot of Foucault late late sort of Foucault in it. So I'm curious. You never like obviously you never left uh, FIU in the sense that you were always still staying in contact with Harry. You were staying in contact with Francois, mm -hmm. uh, likely staying in contact with Nick uh, Onif as well. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, how did it like how did you how did you juggle that and manage that in terms of pursuing that line of research um, uh, along with, you know, your graduate studies, working on your dissertation, you know, trying to get, you know, all of that uh, finished up while also then eventually thinking about the market? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um... You know, obviously, I was the the really the more junior participant in in the book with Francois, right? So I think Francois, I, I wrote, uh, I think the, the third chapter. Um, we co-wrote, I think the first. He wrote the second and in, in the introduction, and we co-wrote the conclusion. But I think, um, you know, obviously, I think Francois carried the project. It it was I had uh, it was such a formative experience uh, to work with Francois because first of all, Francois is such an incredible writer. 
incredibly and, and precise writer. And it sort of taught me how to write, right? Taught me how to write journal articles. Um, and so co-authoring with him was, was um, really in, in, extraordinary for my career, right? Um, and I can't, I mean, if you find, if you're a grad student and you find a more senior professor um, that you can work with, that you trust, it's, it's an incredibly, it's an invaluable experience, right? Um, so I, I was able to do that. And at the same time, you know, writing my seminar papers. And, and the thing is about Hopkins is that, um, you know, my professors were not very strict about deadlines. The Hopkins program, I think Harry mentioned this, and, and I think Tony Lang, right, uh, is the other Hopkins person on, on the podcast, right? You know, it was it, it was a very kind of laid back program, right? So you didn't have like, these, you know, if you couldn't finish the seminar paper in the semester, you get it incomplete and do right over the summer or whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. Um, and so I, you know, I, I took advantage of that, right? Which is a, so I had a lot of leeway in terms of, of you know, get submitting my work and, and, and what have you. Um, I, should, I mean, I came into Hopkins thinking I would write or continue with the work that I did with my, my MA on Schmidt and what have you. And then I quickly realized that that's not really what I wanted to do. And I think um, on top of what I was writing with Francois, plus the seven different seminars that I was taking at Hopkins, it's completely changed the focus away from, from that. Um, plus I was taking uh, a, a seminar with um, a political theorist that, who's still at Hopkins called Jennifer Colbert, um, who I ended up working with um, a lot more than um, uh, others. Uh, she Hopkins. focuses on a rent, right? Yeah. Uh, or, or at least yeah. did for a little, yeah. Because I think she, she was on the circle with, with me and a couple others when Jack's, uh, book manuscript was being yeah. written on critical reflexivity or whatever so is that where the Arentian influence uh so to speak that in some of your work uh comes from yeah was, was in Colbert yeah I mean I, I had read I had read Arendt's uh um beginning in you know when I was still at FIU um but I remember I think it was a summer I took an independent study with her and a couple of my colleagues uh, friends at, at at um Hopkins uh and so we sat with, with Jennifer and we read um, Arendt, uh, most of Arendt's work on, in, in the summer. And it was the first time that I actually read from cover to cover The Origins of Totalitarianism. And that was one of those books that sort of rocked my world, right? I think the, the two main books that I that really sort of shaped me as a young grad student was, was The Origins of Totalitarianism and Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish, right? Um, because once you read those works, I think, particularly Foucault, like you don't see the world the same way anymore. Um, and so I quickly realized that there were a lot of questions that aren't, I think, posed that that for me were intriguing and were also politically salient with what was happening at the time. Right. So obviously the invasion of Iraq and and I started thinking about, you know, what are the not only devastating consequences of the invasion for the region, but what are the potential reverberating impacts that that, that war would have on the United States itself, right? Um, what are the, 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 the transfers, technological transfers and, and uh, things that might destabilize American political institutions as, as a consequence of this, right? And this, I think this was not a question that was being addressed a lot at the time, but but nonetheless is present in our rent, right? Which is all about this this question of the boomerang effect. Um, and then so I started. I was reading our rent. I was reading a, a lot of sort of first generation post colonial thinkers like the Césaire and Fanon and C. L. R. James and others that that were 
um, particularly Cezale that was thinking about this notion of the boomerang effect. And so that that sort of becomes the the crux of the dissertation. So um, when did you go on the market? Uh, because I know you defended your PhD in 2012 and the first gig I remember uh, congratulating you on. Um, I, I think we already knew in the fall of 2012 at that ISA Northeast, which is also famous for for, for other reasons, um, <laughs> that you were headed to Beirut, uh, that you were right. going to American University. Were were you on the market in the fall of 2012 or was it even before then? Like So like when in 2012 did all of these things kind of come together, defending your dissertation, going on the market, figuring out where, what uh, gig you were going to take? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I started applying to jobs actually in the spring of 2012, right? When my defense date was was pretty much um, uh, clear. Um, and, but I really sort of, I think the AUB job I applied in the spring of 2012. Um, I also, I was, it was, um, I applied for the St. Andrews job. Um, and I was actually flown out in November of, of 2012 for that. Where I met Tony Lang for the first time. Actually. And was that like the typical UK experience where you were there with the other candidates? Yes. Uh, that, okay. Okay. Yeah, actually it was. And, and I had no idea. Right. So the only thing that I knew that I was asked to do was um, to present for 15 minutes and to answer questions for 10 minutes. And then I had another meeting with like one of the their search committee, I think for 45 minutes, that was the extent of the the job experience. But I, so I think Karen Gentry took me out to dinner the night before um, and she was lovely. I had a lovely time with her and then, but I had sort of no idea what the UK job experience was. And then, so I arrived there and at the reception area, there are all these different candidates. And, and one guy looks at me once and he said, Oh, you're the American candidate. I guess you're going to get the job. What? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> You're like, yeah, they usually like American candidates. So, um, but yeah, so I, it was my turn to to go. So we were all sitting there, and it was my turn to go up, and I, I you know, presented on the dissertation, and um, I think I got two questions, um, you know, and then it sort of it, you know, it passed so quickly. And actually, the funny thing is that so I figured, okay, I'm going to fly back, and then we'll see, you know, I'll hear from them. And then that evening, right, I get an email from the chair of the department saying, hey, you know, we're offering you the job. Here are the conditions. Right. And I'm just, that quickly then. huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, the problem was I, you know, I would have loved to have taken it, I think, um, had I been single. Right. Uh, it's such a fantastic department. Um, the, the issue. Well, there are two issues. One is I wasn't sure if if. You know, if Allah wanted to move to to rural Scotland, um, our son Robert was in French school. Um, there were no French schools in the in, in the proximity of St Andrews. There was there was none in, in Edinburgh either. Um, I wasn't sure how that was going to work. Also, I mean, I mean, there were also these questions financially, whether it was, you know, um, if we could do it or what have you. The the Beirut. So we had the Beirut offer. It's just that they were dragging their feet constantly about when when I would start and what have you. Um, it just there were so many advantages to it. So people think we're you know when we said okay we we it's either we go to Scotland or we go to Lebanon, you know all of our friends would be like, are you insane? Why are you going to Lebanon? There's a raging civil war next door, right? Destabled you know unstable re uh, uh, region. 
versus you know the beauty of rural Scotland. Right? So, so we ended up going to Beirut, and I started in Beirut in in January of of twenty thirteen. When the uh, the refugee crisis is bad, like oh, the, yeah. the Syrian civil war is really, really bad. Um, yeah. it's, it hasn't quite, I mean, at least the first round of famous chemical attacks haven't happened yet, but they're going to uh, while you're there in 2013, right? And then the airstrikes. Yeah, that, that was that was in September. Right, so, uh, so the funny thing is Allah, and so I, I went first because we didn't want to cut Robert's school year. So, um, but Alan and Robert ended up moving in at the end of August of, of 2013, right? And we settle and everything. And then two weeks later is when, you know, there was the chemical attack and there was the question of the red line and whether or not Obama was going to, you know, order airstrikes against Syria. And so everybody there on the ground was was saying, well, if the United States gets involved, then this this is a regional war, right? And so we were <laughs> we just, we had just unpacked our suitcases, right? And we're thinking, well, well, maybe we need to repack them and, and leave. Um, but thank God it, it didn't it didn't happen and, and sort of things became more stable. But but you could definitely see the signs of of, of the horror of, of of the Syrian civil war with with the amount of, of refugees and, and homeless children in Beirut and, and what have you. So um, and we, we, you know, we would drive sometimes in, in, in the Becca Valley and we can see the, the refugee camps and what have you. Well, then. I mean, a lot of things are all happening at this time, not only in, in the region, but but for you as a, a uh, as a scholar. Uh, and so I'm I know that this is the period of time because I got to see you in Weimar when we had that get together for the, the sort of constructivist group mm-hmm. um, uh, in I want to say maybe January or February of 2014. It was pretty early. I know it was in the winter. February. It was cold. February. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I got to see, and I know that that was right around the time that you were expecting or had gotten the offer, or at least had, had was told that you were going to get the offer to FIU. Um, because when you told me that I said, okay, well, we have lunch now, so let's get a beer and celebrate it. <laughs> and, and so we did. And then I think the other thing that happened right around that time was that you got the contract for uh empire within from rowledge right because that didn't that got published the next year but that like right. that would have been and so then i'm like well now we got two reasons to celebrate it, it is my is my recollection correct uh on the timing like that being a really celebratory time i mean yes. i was celebrating for like three days because i was seeing all my friends <laughs> and everything else but i really was excited about this this news for you so like all of that sounds yes. like it happened right around then yeah Absolutely, and how did yeah, yeah so how did you uh, um so you had been in uh, at American University of Beirut for about a year, but it sounds like you went right back on the market that next that next year, uh, or maybe not. Maybe it was just targeted. You know, it was targeted. I, I we weren't so we weren't sure obviously how long we were going to stay. I mean, we, you know, we started getting comfortable actually in in, in Beirut. It, it wasn't you know actually it it was a really good experience and a very formative experience for me. I got to meet so many interesting people because Beirut is one of those places where a lot of people want to go just to visit. And so, you know, I got to I got to hang out with like like Vijay Prashad, who was there for a year, right? Lali Khalili would would come often. And so I got to have dinner with her a few times and got to know her. So there, it was one of those places where you, you you get to meet a lot of really interesting people, and not just academics, right? A lot of you know, important journalists and 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 what have you would come by the university. Um so so for us it was it, it it after a while you know we were hesitant to to sort of travel around the country given the political situation but eventually you know um 
you know, we started renting cars and going and visiting different areas of Lebanon. And, and Lebanon is such an amazingly beautiful country and so, and, and really such a uh, hospitable people. And, and so we, we ended up having such a wonderful time. Um, I wasn't a, I wasn't really applying for jobs uh, at the time. It just so happened that this job opened up at FIU. Um, actually, because I think um, uh, Richard Beardsworth went back to Aber. Um, and so his line actually got separated into two lines, two assistant lines. And um, I remember when it came out, the discussion was, well, you know, um, we could stay here and then take our chances about figuring out a way to come home, um, which I think over as, as the years accumulated becomes more difficult, right? Um, or, you know, apply and, and if, it, if it works, then we end up coming back to Miami, which uh, for us was, was great because, you know, my mom still lives here. Uh, Alice's parents live here. Um, you know, it's a, we obviously, we know Miami really well and we know the department and, and, and what have you. So, so that's what, what, why I applied, right? And so I think it, I came in, in January uh, to Miami, January 2013 for the job talk. Um, and then I found, I found out in, when we were at Weimar together that, that I got the offer. And I think like one day or the, the same, almost I think the same day or the day before I got the, the news of the contract. So this, those two things came together in, in Weimar. Uh, well, um, and then the rest is history, so to speak. I mean, uh, <laughs> it does. I do remember you saying all of this, though, when we were even at lunch that you that that uh, you not only were were having like a, a, a great experience, you know, uh, living in Lebanon and, and getting to to see. But because by that point, I think you were starting to go out into the country a little bit. But yeah. you were also I, I also remember that you were you were really productive during that period of time, too, because um, you were fine, even with everything that was going on and even, you know, just trying to transition and get settled in. Um, you were writing a lot. I just remember because in it, like separate from, um, you know, the book, which is, you know, you're waiting on the contract for, um, you had a, you had a great paper at Weimar that you presented. Um, there was another couple papers that I remember you and I were chatting about uh, a little bit on the side. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, it, it sounds like though, that it was a fairly easy decision then to go, uh, to take the FIU job. Uh, yeah. And then, so then you started in August of that year. Um, do you remember, and if you don't want to talk about this, sometimes people think that it's a little bit too sensitive. That's fine. But, um, did you have any discussions about shortening your tenure clock when you got to FIU? I think you and I chatted about this a little bit, but um, was it one of those things where you didn't want to shorten your tenure clock or because you were coming in with a book, you're going to get credit for that. You you could publish, you know, your next round of, of research um, outputs or whatever, um, because it looks like it was about five years, you were an assistant professor. So um, the normal tenure clock in the US is six years. So did, did you get like that typical credit for prior service as you went in there? And then in addition to that, then how are you thinking about, because once you come back to the US Academy, you're also coming back to the expectations regarding tenure. So how are you thinking about your tenure clock and all of those considerations? Yeah, I, I that's a good question. So I, I did, I, and it was offered to me that I would get a year of service, particularly for, um, given the, the time that I spent at, at AUB, um, I I took it mainly because I had the contract for the book, right? And the book was really what was necessary for me to get tenure, right? And I had sufficient articles and what have you. So, they, so, so tenure was not an issue for me. 
right? I was really lucky, uh, and this goes back to Hopkins, right? I was really lucky in the sense that, um, and I think I think Sebagro told me this, and, and also Bill and, and and Jennifer, right? They they from the beginning they told me write a book, don't write a dissertation, right? And so um, it really uh, helped me because I didn't have to spend years trying to revise a dissertation into a book. I mean, the book was basically was almost ready. Um, I had sent the manuscript initially to the University of Michigan Press, um, and I, I forget who who was the editor. Um, who was at the editor at the time there. And she she really liked it, but she said, you know, you're going to have to rewrite two chapters um, with primary archival materials, given the historical claims that you're making. And, and I thought, okay, well, do I want to take the chance? And then what if it gets rejected and what have you? So I decided, you know, Rutledge was more accommodating in that regard. Um, the revisions were not so substantial. And, and so I could just get it out and, 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 and you know, rest assured that I would, I would get tenured, right? And that would leave me some time to think about what do, what do I want to work on next, right? Um, I was also very lucky in the sense that I was collaborating with with others. I was co-writing with others. So I wrote with Daniel Levine, right? We, we co-wrote um, two articles and, and a book chapter. Um, I mean, this but this was way before I, I co-wrote also with David McCourt. I don't know if you, if you know that. Huh? Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. it was the yeah. um, it was the JIPT article rethinking That's international right. yeah. history. On, on um, and I think that I mean, I think those those discussions were uh, already happening when when we had that panel the, at the same year in 2010. Um, That's right. There and then yeah. and then uh, the one with Dan Levine. Um, the first one was the Millennium article, and right. then you had the follow up with the EJIR article, and then the book chapter as well. Because you, you you two always thought of it as a trilogy, right? So yeah. Um, and then and then we're all like you know these constructivist kind of you know um uh, projects were also happening, and then I I wrangled right. you into um that that Centenary International that special issue of AJ of the Australian Journal of Politics and History, um, where you contributed, which was really important all. for me, right? Mm -hmm. Because I wrote on the Arme Armenian genocide, and I was thinking about the Armenian genocide um, through kind of uh, a history, a, a way of interpreting it through a language of race, right? Which became sort of was germinating in, in my mind of, of thinking about these, the, the the greater importance of, of race in, in international politics. Right, so that article was really uh, uh, instrumental in, in shaping what, what later became the Global Race War book. But I was, I was like I said, I was really lucky in that I was uh, everybody that I wrote with and collaborated with was was uh, such a positive, extraordinary experience. Um, so that also helped me in terms of being productive, right? And then when you went up uh, for promotion and tenure. Did uh, did you celebrate when you? I mean, it, it sounds like it was a little bit anticlimactic because you kind of knew by then you were hopefully getting enough smoke signals from those around you. Um, did did FIU then or even now does it does it have a kind of a nice clear policy on on tenure? Is it just one of those things that there's a set of expectations that are at least uh, if not formalized, at least well known? Um, I think it's so. I think it is formalized in in okay. the bylaws of of the department. I I actually in the last uh, th for the last three years I was on the the school's uh, tenure and promotion uh, committee. And so uh, I think the the push has been to, for all departments to, to sort of spell out what are the tenure requirements in print. And then did you celebrate when 
<laughs> and when you got um, tenure, <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. I think we would, uh, you know, we as a family, we we went out to dinner. But it, like, but like you said, it was sort of expected. I mean, I think what was so for me was was perhaps more gratifying was uh, the policy at FIU is, and I think it's a state policy, which is that tenure letters, external tenure letters, are 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 open to us, right? We, Sunshine we, laws, we, yep, absolutely. Yes, yeah. so, so you I know, I've written a lot for a lot of different Florida institutions, yeah. and and I mean, you they tell you that, like, if you're a letter writer, it's going to be right. Right, right, and so for me, what was the most gratifying actually was um, was reading those those positive um, uh, external letters from my colleagues. I know, and there, there's a part of me that's like, I mean, it can cut both ways, right? There's there's pros and cons to having access to that, but um, and I've done it afterwards. I've done it where if they didn't have access to it, um, you know, a candidate, I I I send it to them later after it, after the decision's already been made. Because, you know, that's sometimes it's some of the most positive stuff <laughs> that's ever going to be written about us, right? At least professionally, yeah. you know, um, uh, the kind of work that we do and the record that we have. But you never get to see it uh, if you're in some of these institutions. So that was good. And FIU has, like, how many letters How many letters do you have to have? Um, I think between five and six. It is five and six. Yeah. 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 There's some places it's three and four, but it's there's some it's five. And six. It's just so hard to get people to say yes that... Um, Cause it, cause it's a lot of work, but, um, well, how, how do you write? When do you write? Where do you write? How do you approach writing? Uh, like when you were describing Francois how great of a writer he is, which he is. Um, and for him, it, it's just like, I talked to him about this on this, on this podcast. For me, it always felt like it was just natural to him <laughs> when you're reading him it's just like this just comes naturally um yeah but it, it i, I kind of have the same impression when i'm reading your work right i mean like your globalizations piece the neo materialist ecologies and global systemic crisis which i've told you like i have a chapter in my restraint book that that really helped focus my attention mm-hmm. um thinking about the um the us the, the sort of um the euro crisis especially right uh mm-hmm. in the 2010s and and political economy um but i want when I'm reading that I'm just like oh this seems like this just spills out of his fingers and into his <laughs> into his laptop but um has it always been that way like how how do you yeah how do you typically approach writing um so I it's it's weird like I I've tried to like write outlines I've tried to organize you know my materials in a way to make it more systematic it never works for me right um and it's my writing is is it begins very haphazard, right? It's uh, I remember when I was writing my dissertation, what I used to lo- to to do is is you know because sometimes you you're afraid of the blank page and it's difficult to start and what have you. I would try to tell a story, right? So I would write a, a kind of story and then I would edit it and then I'd, I and then as I I'm writing I'm I'm also reading uh, materials that I have on my desk or things that are are obviously germane to what I'm working on. And so things begin to click in my mind um, to draw connections between different sources. And so that's sort of, it's, it's, it's like kind of, you know, when you're painting and this canvas starts coming into focus like that, it's weird before I, before I write or before I actually sit down and write, it's, it looks blank to me, but it's in the process of actually being on the keyboard and writing that things begin to click in my mind and that I get on, and that, that I get on paper, um, so to speak. And then afterwards, it's just a question of like editing and and, and what have you. Um, but I can't I can't be systematic with it. It's for me. It's it's like a a creative uh, process. The whole process itself has to be like that. I tend has to it always has has it always been that way? 
yeah. for you? It has. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, and you're going to go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that um, I think, uh, so it, going back to Francois, right? Francois is basically the one who taught me to write, academically speaking, at least. Because, um, first of all, it was very intimidating, right? Because he would send me a chapter and he would say, you could finish, you know, finish this part um, or, or edit it or what have you. And, and you know, and his, and, and his prose is, is so, as I said, precise and, and elegant and what have you. And so the, the onus was on me to, 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 um, to write well, right? And so that sort of really pushed me to be careful. And also um, the other person I think was really instrumental in my, in my writing was uh, was Jennifer Colbert, right? And 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 Jennifer, uh, it was is an extraordinarily careful reader. Like I don't think there's anybody who has read my work as as carefully as she has, right? If I, I think I still have the chapters that that I submitted to her from a dissertation, which is every page is filled with red ink, right? Why did you use this word? Why did why this sentence doesn't mean what it's what you think it's, it means and what have you? Um, and I would I would every time I would meet with her. I would come out of her office feel, drenched in in sweat, right? Because she had this incredible authority to to um, over you, right? And so, um, so that sort of also pushed me to to try to write well. Um, generally speaking, I mean, I, I tend to write in the mornings because that's when I'm I'm the freshest, I think, right? And so, for example, the dissertation, I remember I I would drop off Robert to school in the morning. I would I would get myself a pack of cigarettes when I was smoking at the time, a lot of coffee. And I would just, uh, you know, I would just have a cigarette burning and, and, and write. <laughs> back at, so did you ever go do the coffee shops or were you always back at the office uh, writing or were you at home? Like where? No, no, where, I, write, where, I write from home. I, you I you always, write. okay. Has it always been that way too? Yeah. Uh, for the most part? Yeah, I, yeah. I've tried to write in the office. It's just, it's distracting. Like people knock on your door or, there's like commotion and stuff. The, the best time for me to write is when, you know, the kids are at school, uh, I'm alone at home and, um, you know, there, it's like quiet. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, take... I need that quiet. Yeah. And it, well, that makes sense, especially because of the the mode of writing that you have is a little bit more artistic and creative. Mm -hmm. um, I had, had you ever, so, I mean, it's hard to say, right? Because you guys had uh, Robert uh, before you were out of grad school, but um, but you've never written like late at night. You never done that. Gone on the writing benders that some of us go on or whatever. No, okay. No, not that I could. I, I I can't do that. It doesn't. It's it would be too, it's too difficult, too draining. I mean, writing is for me always a draining experience, right? And so, mm -hmm. I could maybe write you know all morning, um, and and that's pretty much it. I mean, the the, the one I think the, the advantage that I have is that I write quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So when when things are clear. You know, I can I can write two, three thousand words in, in in a morning. I mean, they might not be the best, right? But you, you might come back not... to them and revise yeah, them yeah. a little bit, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um. Well, what do you do to decompress? <laughs> what do you do to relax? <laughs> do you ever relax? Um. But I mean, you, you don't <laughs> smoke cigarettes anymore, so. Um, you know, are there other <laughs> healthier ways that you, uh, um, I know you got a puppy. I know you, I know you all have, yeah. um, yeah. Is it, she's a French bulldog. Is that right? French or, bulldog. Yeah. Yeah. How long have you had, have you always had dogs or is this? The... No, no. I, I was always a cat person. My family always had cats. So this is the first time we had a dog. Um, I, we've been wanting to get a dog, uh, particularly for, for the children. Um, and so, I mean, I think during the pandemic, we decided 
Uh, we would get a dog. I think the question was, I always wanted to get a Dachshund. I've always loved mm-hmm. Dachshunds with her. Um, but my wife wanted a, a French bulldog. And, and so by, again, by, by sort of coincidence, uh, our neighbor's daughter got a French bulldog and she sort of introduced us to the breeder and we ended up getting, getting our Nina, uh, who's just a, a clown, little clown, but she's such a wonderful dog. How old is she now? She, she just turned two. Okay, that's right. So the, the that is the pandemic do- uh, dog. That's another one of those pandemic dogs. Is um, but I know that Frenchies they don't they don't have to walk. In fact, they can't walk a long ways, right? Because otherwise, the breathing gets tough and everything for them. So she's right? okay for the breeding. Um, okay, and actually, of 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 usually Frenchies are kind of lazy in that sense. They don't like to walk. But Nina is a turbo. She loves walking. So I take her, particularly during the winter months. I would uh, when it's cooler. Outside, I would take her for, you know, 45 minute walks and she's just fine. Oh, that's yeah, great. So, okay. Yeah. And it's, so, it's good for, for her health. Yeah. And yours as well, right? I mean, and mine too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what else do you do? I know that I know you're really into to football. I know when the World Cup comes around and the, and uh, UEFA, you know, the, the Euro Cup comes around, uh, you're always cheering for France and you're always on the, <laughs> always on Twitter <laughs> tweeting about it and everything. But do, do you play any sports or, you know, do you, do you go running or are there other activities that you do? No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a very sporty. I used to play actually a lot of, love soccer or football, um, particularly in high school. And then I, you know, obviously I started smoking and that was that. Um, so so I, I used to, to be more active. What, one of the things that I, you know, I would love to do, I, I actually absolutely love hiking, right? So I love mountains. Ironic, right? For somebody who grew up in Miami, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm not a water person much. I don't like beaches. Um, so um, my dream actually, as I get older, would be to spend more time like hiking in mountains and, and, and doing that stuff. Um, I think the other thing that I, I, I'm really into is I, I play a lot of chess online. I don't know if it's, it's to relax because I, <laughs> I get annoyed when I lose, but um, so I'm, I'm, I've been actually since high school, I was always interested in chess and, and so I play a lot of it online. Mm-hmm. And the, and you got the kids too, right? So that's, that's keeping yeah, you active. Exactly. Yeah. And you do well, a lot. A- you, you, you got, you, are you guys still are you guys back to taking trips again because i know you used to travel a lot with with them but um are yeah, you able so to yeah mm-hmm. we're i mean uh, with the pandemic it's been difficult i i was able to travel uh, a couple times to visit my dad who's in europe right so um mm-hmm. i went twice to visit him in switzerland um but i think the idea is that we're going to travel more, we're going to travel start traveling more uh, in the next year i know all loves traveling and so Prior to the pandemic, we spent a lot of time, you know, in France and and um, in Provence and, and and what have you. So I think we want to do that, and then also go to to Armenia. She hasn't been back to Armenia, I think, uh, for for quite a while. Um, I think since I think we were there in 2013, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while. And does she have family there, or? Um, so her her parents are here, and her brother lives in DC. Um, right. I think she has an aunt. Uh, who lives That's in right. Armenia, and and then she has family that also lives in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we actually visited them in 2013. Also, we in December 2013 we flew from Beirut to to Moscow to spend um, New Year's there. I actually went ice skating on Red Square, <laughs> <laughs> and you can ice skate. That's I, 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 I can ice skate. Yeah, <laughs> for, for another thing for a Floridian. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you, Professor Alex Barter, for being on this Hayseed Scholar podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
Okay, that was my interview with Professor Alex Barter of Florida International University. It was great catching up with my friend. We chatted even after the formal conversation ended and caught up, oh gosh, for a good half hour longer. And I'm hoping I'm, I'm going to get to run into him at the ISA Northeast, which is back in Baltimore this year. It's going to be in person for the first time in several years. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing him. I was hoping to see him at the ISA meeting in Nashville, but he had some travel issues. And so he couldn't make it up. And it was just a bummer because I had his book. I was going to have him sign my book. He is uh, known for being very Spartan with his language when he signs books, and I give him a hard time about that. It's kind of an ongoing inside joke between us. And so I didn't get to see him in Nashville, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing him in Baltimore, uh, where we have some history together, uh, and it's always joyous. And so it'll be good to connect with him. Myself, I am getting ready to go back to the ISA West, which is back in Pasadena, as it always is, uh, pandemic permitted, um, in September. And I'm going. I'm really excited about it. I'm going to be hitting up at least three of the ISA regionals this fall. So if any of you will be there at either the ISA West in Pasadena, the ISA Northeast in Baltimore, or the I and or the ISA Midwest in St. Louis. I'm planning to be at all three. Please get in touch. Uh, let's get a coffee together. Let's catch up. Uh, if I haven't met you before, um, that's even better. Uh, that would be a great opportunity to meet. I like those regional conferences, especially because they're kind of a little bit smaller, a little bit more low key, um, and you can find uh, places to just catch up and have a conversation instead of just kind of, you know, drive-by, so to speak, uh, where you just kind of say hi and then head to your next panel. So in the meantime, I hope everyone is well or as well as can be expected considering everything that's happening around us. I have a few more interviews scheduled over the next few weeks. I'll be releasing them at a regular every two to three weeks. And so I'm in kind of a nice space to be able to have these conversations with folks and talk to them about their research, about their interests, about their lives. And I hope you are enjoying it as well. So until then, I hope all is well and cheers. <laughs>